You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. November is an annual month-long event involving the growing of moustaches to raise cash for charity and awareness of men's health issues. Statistics show that one in five men will die before the age of 65. When it comes down to their biggest killers, studies suggest three out of five men understand that early diagnosis is key, but an equal number wouldn't interact with the healthcare system until it's too late. When it comes to saving lives, action speaks louder than moustaches. With regular health checks, particularly important for the over 40s, as Dr Jill Jenkins explains. It's important to have regular health checks, particularly as you reach your middle age, because medical problems are commoner. You need to talk about your lifestyle and really to be guided through a healthy middle and then old age. We all want to live a longer, healthier life and that's one way to do it. So what would a typical NHS health check involve? The NHS health check is a useful way of talking to the patient and assessing particularly their heart risk. You'll have things like your weight measured, your blood pressure measured. They can then work out a factor of all your risks around the heart. So smoking, weight, family history, and then how you can improve your lifestyle. And if you need to have anything measured and treated, such as your blood pressure or your cholesterol, then they'll progress on to talk about that. In your experience, why won't men talk to their GP? There's lots of factors. You could ask, are they a bit in denial? If I don't go and see them, then it won't happen. And you could also argue that we don't make it easy for men. Some people feel that GPs are a bit too worried about tick boxing and targets. And we should really make it that the agenda is that of the patient, not the GP, when you come for an appointment. What can be done to encourage more of the male population to interact with the healthcare system? We have to make it easier for them. Whether we simply try and get their relatives to persuade the father or the boyfriend to come along, or whether we really address the issues for men around why they don't want to come, we have to make it more accessible so that men can come after work. They don't have to tell people at work they're going to the doctor. And then make it that it's their agenda that they want to talk about. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Recent research suggests that three out of five people living with chronic conditions have sought to use herbal or natural products to try and give conventional medicine a helping hand. Worryingly, just over a third wouldn't think to check whether any herbal preparations they took may interact with any other medications they've been prescribed. And equally concerning, just over 50% hadn't first sought any form of professional advice on the use of these herbal preparations and wouldn't think to mention their usage to their GP. The Atkinson is from the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. Herbal medicine can be practiced very safely, very effectively in the correct hands. People think, oh, herbal medicine is natural and it's safe and they should start to treat themselves. And that's often where people find herbs are not successful because they read up in books and they try to acquire various potions that they mix up themselves and they're not really understanding the science of herbal medicine. The other misconception that people have is that you just don't get side effects from herbs. Well, you can get side effects from herbs. Dee, I know your association would always advocate that if people are looking to herbal medicine rather than trust the internet and self-prescribe, they should recruit the aid of a fully qualified and accredited medical herbalist. In doing our research looking for a suitably qualified practitioner, what are the credentials we should be looking for and what would be the approach of the practitioner on a first consultation? 
they should ask if they're a member of a professional body, the National Institute of Medical Herbalists or the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy. Those are the two main Western herbal bodies in the UK. Members of these bodies have undergone training at degree level. We have continual professional development. We're also properly insured, which is very important. You should expect the practitioner to go through your current medical history, your presenting complaint. They will look at all the medicines you're taking at the moment. They'll probably go through your lifestyle and diet. If they might decide to do further medical examinations, you might be asked to go and have some blood tests taken. And it really depends on what your problem is. Then the herbalist will work up a treatment plan. Then you'll be asked to come back to have a follow-up assessment. I understand in a growing number of instances, medical herbalists integrate their approach with what's perceived as conventional medicine and would always advocate if patients are on existing medication that they talk to their doctors about the use of herbal medicine. And although private practitioners, the public can be assured that each accredited herbal medicine practitioner is working for their best interests and not to increase their bank balance. Hopefully the public have gone to see a member of the National Institute of Medical Herbalists or of the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy and those are professional practitioners and it would be against their code of ethics for them to do something like that. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Defined as a deficiency of energy, protein and other nutrients that can cause adverse effects on the body, the way it functions and clinical outcomes, most malnutrition here in the UK is disease-related, although some social and mechanical factors can also have an impact. Studies show that malnutrition affects as many as 3 million people in communities across Britain. Consultant dietitian Anne Holdaway is chair of the Managing Adult Malnutrition in the Community Panel. A huge number, isn't it? And I think the problem is malnutrition is often developing fairly insidiously in the community, affecting people at home, in their care homes, in nursing homes, and many people who are suffering from chronic conditions, whose food intake may be restricted, whose appetite may be poor as a consequence of the condition that they might be living with. And also it affects the frail elderly as well. What impact does malnutrition have? It will affect their recovery from a condition, the time that they spend in hospital, and it may cause the readmission back to hospital if they're suffering from malnutrition in conjunction with the disease itself. So Anne, how do we start to tackle the problem? So we have to be more proactive in actually looking for it. If you've got an ageing mother or father, are they eating as they usually eat? Are they commenting that they've got a loss of appetite? Appetite? Are they losing weight unintentionally so their clothes are becoming loose? And are they even aware and noticing unplanned weight loss? I think for GPs and nurses who may be under a lot of pressure in their own GP surgeries, is thinking about when there's a patient with dementia or a patient you know has had cancer and cancer treatment or a frail elderly individual is actually thinking, are they at risk of malnutrition and should I be screening them? Which then leads on to a conversation with them. Are they eating enough and do they have any concerns about their ability? to eat. For those of us concerned that they or a loved one might be living with disease-related malnutrition, the Patients Association have published new resources. Their CEO is Rachel Power. These new resources will help support patients in self-management. And if a patient doesn't feel the ability to self-manage, they can use these fact sheets and the checklist to work with their healthcare professionals to make sure they're getting the best. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Research shows 20% of adults and 16% of children are known to be deficient in vitamin D, the so-called sunshine vitamin that plays an important role in keeping us healthy. Dr Kerry Rushton is from the Health and Food Supplements Information Service. We get more than 90% of the 
the vitamin D in our body from sunlight hitting our skin and then our skin actually produces a form of vitamin D which then interacts with our kidneys and then starts circulating around our blood and that is the vitamin D that is taken up by most of the cells in our body that use that vitamin but we can also get some from the diet so around about 10% of the vitamin D in our body comes from foods which contain vitamin D which are very few in number I have to say. Kerry, since 2020, government advice has been that adults and children over the age of one should consider a daily supplement of 10 micrograms of vitamin D every day. What benefits do we get from vitamin D? We know that vitamin D is vital for normal bone health. Our bones are a bit like a sponge, so they have this matrix with lots and lots of holes in it. And what our body wants to do is fill up those holes with calcium to make the bones nice and strong. This also applies to the teeth, by the way. And vitamin D facilitates getting the calcium from our diets and our gut into the bones and fixing it there and helping to maintain the calcium levels in our blood in a normal range. And you could have loads of calcium in the diet, but if you're vitamin D deficient, your bones will still suffer and become weakened because you haven't got that cooperation between the vitamin D and the calcium. Then muscles, if you don't have enough vitamin D in the diet, you can have weaker, poorer functioning muscles. And in elderly people, that can lead to falls. So maintaining good vitamin D levels is great for bones, muscles, and now we understand it's good for immune function because vitamin D is essential across many types of immune cells and helps them to work effectively to ward off all those colds and flus and viruses. If we're looking to boost our levels of vitamin D through our diet, what are the options? We're looking at oily fish, which contains between 3 and 16 micrograms per 100 grams of fish. So that's kind of about 4 ounces. If you were having a portion of oily fish once or twice a week, then that is only going to give you about two or three days' worth of vitamin D, so you've still got a gap. Egg yolks contain about 0.1 to 5 micrograms, but that's per 100 grams, so you'd have to have quite a lot of eggs to get that level. And you get a small amount from things like red meat. Liver is quite rich. Mushrooms to a very tiny extent. Apart from that, you're really looking at fortified foods, and for that you want to check the packaging to see how much much vitamin D has been added per portion. So you can see it's really quite limiting just to rely on diet to get all the vitamin D that you need. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Ovarian cancer is diagnosed in around 7,400 women in the UK each year. It mostly affects the over 50s, but around 1 in 10 cases occur in women below the ages of 45. 9 out of 10 women will survive if it's diagnosed and treated early. Catherine Murray from the charity Target Ovarian Cancer talks us through the signs and symptoms to look out for. Key symptoms of ovarian cancer are a persistent bloated tummy, always feeling full or not being able to finish a meal, tummy pain and then urinary symptoms needing to wee more often or more urgently. These symptoms will be new for you and they'll be frequent. So we usually say as a guide they'll be happening around 12 times a month or more frequently in the last three weeks. We always recommend people, if they're worried about these symptoms, write them down. Make a diary if you have one or just take some notes about the frequency of these symptoms. It can really help to have it all in front of you when you go into that GP appointment. How knowledgeable are GPs about ovarian cancer? We know that the number of ovarian cancers they see during their career would actually be very low. But that doesn't let them off the hook. It's really important for GPs to know the symptoms and to be skilled up on ovarian cancer. 
And what we do at Target Ovarian Cancer is we offer GP education modules on the symptoms and also on things like family history and why that's important in ovarian cancer. What tests will a woman undergo if a GP thinks there's something that needs investigating? There's two tests. Generally, the first one will be a blood test, which measures something called the CA125 protein. If that comes back raised, there will be a pelvic ultrasound. So that requires a visit usually to a hospital or other centre. If those tests show ovarian cancer, then the person will get referred to a specialist gynae oncology service. We also see a difference across the UK with these tests. In Scotland, the two tests are done both at the same time. In the rest of the UK, it's the blood test comes first and if that is raised, you then go on to have the ultrasound. Target Ovarian Cancer is campaigning for both of these tests to happen at the same time across the UK. That could help more women get diagnosed earlier, which is crucial. Does the cervical smear test pick up ovarian cancer? The cervical smear test does not pick up ovarian cancer. It only looks for changes in the cells of the cervix, which could then lead to cervical cancer. For ovarian cancer, the two tests that are important are the CA125 and the ultrasound. Where are we at in terms of understanding and treating ovarian cancer? Usual treatment for ovarian cancer is surgery and chemotherapy. What we've seen in the last 10-15 years is lots of progress in new treatments and new types of treatments. And we've seen that's given a lot of hope to our community and particularly actually in the last six months we've had a couple of announcements that have widened access to these new kinds of treatments and given more people across the UK access to them on the NHS so that's been incredibly positive during a very difficult time for people. We still need to get this early diagnosis. You still have the best outcomes in ovarian cancer if you get diagnosed earlier so that's why it's important to always know the symptoms, write that symptoms diary, get to the GP and that way your GP can get you into treatment if you need it word on health on air and online 52 weeks of the year with paul pennington word on health your personal prescription for your very best of health